0: It doesn't matter what we've done in our past, really. The past does not reach out from the past to determine what we have to do in this next minute. There's an extraordinary freedom that each of us has in every new moment, a freedom to begin again and turn towards what's personally important to author our lives. It all begins by understanding the mind.
1: I want to be happy now. I don't care about the future. I want to be happy right now. You are not alone. You are never, ever, ever alone in this.
0: It's helped my voice grow and given me freedom to be creative
1: on my own. I'm Christina Barcy. Welcome to Be Bold Begin, a podcast dedicated to you, the creative, the healer, and the innovator. The topics and conversations we have here are designed to help you discover what might be getting in your way. ...and offer you tools, techniques, and guidance to move through them.
0: I live in the imposter's body more than I live in my own body. I don't have to feel like I don't deserve this.
1: This is where creativity and healing intersect. If you decide to be bold and begin, you have the opportunity to feel humbled and empowered. I totally believe that. I'm a certified Kaizen Muse creativity coach, a certified Reiki energy healer, and an entrepreneur, artist, and presenter. I will share with you my experiences, my proven tools and techniques that helped me and my clients and loved ones shift and expand in the areas they most desired. This is a gentle and open space where you will hear how others are being bold to encourage you to begin your own journey or expand the one you're on. This is Beeple Begin. Hi, welcome back to Beeple Begin. I am Barcy, your host. And we're spending this season diving into what it means to choose a message-driven life, to make choices in our lives that may feel risky at first, but are the most authentic and intuitive choices we can make for ourselves. That can mean a lot of different things for different people. And I am looking forward to learning more about what it means to my guest today, who has a very practical approach, actually, to becoming our best selves. His name is Eric Winters, and he defines himself as a self-leadership coach speaker and author with a deep knowledge in the science of building courageous and emotionally intelligent mindsets. He recently authored a book cleverly called Swipe Right on Your Best Self, which we will spend some time digging into today, among other things. Welcome, Eric.
0: Hello. Good morning from Sydney, Australia, and thank you for having me on.
1: Absolutely. We just discussed that it's the first day of spring there,
0: <laughs> mm, it's true we've just begun our spring we're leaving our winter and we are ready to warm up we're all ready for change down here too
1: yeah so bring it on. absolutely well i'm so happy that you're here with me again because we are actually recording this for a second time we had a little bit of a technical difficulty previously but everything sounds good today so i am just gonna jump right into it if that's okay with you eric
0: mm, yeah please do I've got a hot cup of tea, so excuse me if there's one or two slurping sounds as you speak. Let's go for it.
1: Absolutely. We're just starting our morning. So warming up with tea sounds really nice, actually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I kind of wanted to start by just learning a little bit more about you. I was looking at your bio, which you have a really fun way of displaying on your website. It it looks like a really fun timeline. So if anyone has a moment when they're done listening to this, you can click on the link in the show notes. We'll have your website posted there and they should check it out because it's really cool. But what I found there was that you lived all over the world and in one of those places you went to school and you received your degree in ecology and then you got a job at IBM. And to me, those things sound a little unrelated, but I would like to know how they relate for you.
0: Right. No, I think you're right. They are completely unrelated, but I can explain. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I thought you might. Yeah, uh, perhaps not to your satisfaction, but I'm going to have a go. So my passion (laughs) when I was at school was in wildlife and uh, ecology and just how all things interconnected in in nature. And uh, I imagined, I had a fantasy that I'd one day become the next David Attenborough. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be travelling the world, crawling down on my hands and knees in front of animals and uh, recording their movements and speaking to camera and having a lot of fun doing that. But when I did my ecology degree in edinburgh actually in in scotland it was very interesting but it it turns out there are very few jobs in television as as (laughs) documentary makers it's more about well yes crawling on your hands and knees yes in the field looking for small drops of poo from animals and snipping bits of grass and taking it back to the lab and grinding it up and putting it in a petri dish and in a test tube and measuring chemicals it's not nearly as exciting as i'd imagined and interesting <laughs> though it was at the end of that degree i'd shuffled off into the careers advisory office at edinburgh university and they had a fabulous course to help you identify what your strengths were and what might be a fulfilling career and actually top of the list was a career as an i.t consultant
1: Was that surprising to you, not to interrupt? Totally.
0: (laughs) I said, you've made a dreadful mistake. This is somebody else's file you've passed to me. This does not, I don't know anything about computers and consultancy. What does that even mean? Mm -hmm. But it turns out what it does mean is talking to a lot of people and understanding what it is they'd like to make happen, what matters to them, what their problems are, and to work with them to design solutions. And problem solve and collaborate with creating, of course, it's computer solutions, but creating these computer solutions to help people fix problems. And I could do that. And it it also meant actually giving a lot of talks to people about new technology. So I got to learn about new technology, talk to audiences, very large audiences, and and train people in how to use it. Actually, they were right. It did work well. (laughs) It did work well, surprisingly
1: enough. Interesting. So I'm curious too, because you led with the consulting part of Mm. the story of what you distilled down and what is this thing that says I should do this. I think we have to timestamp it a little bit where we know what time period this was because technology, IT was something really specific at the time. And then also, you know, what was it that consulting could happen in any area? So how did it end up being IT specifically? So those are two questions, but.
0: Yeah, well, the first one is why IT? I think that's just maybe, it's probably chance. This is what floated to the top of the careers advisory list. So yes, it could have been consulting in any industry, but perhaps it was my interest in problem Solving mm. because it actually is just a whole series of problems, it's just one, they're, they're technical problems, but it's one problem after another. And I think the time, so to just place this in, in history, mm-hmm. this is back in 1984, I think it was 84, 85. So it's right at the early days of the IBM PC the first very widely available personal computer. right? And and they weren't laptops. I tell you back then, they were just huge monsters sitting on desks. But it was a big deal. There was a lot of excitement that everyone could have a computer in their home. So I was traveling the country talking about that, giving presentations on this amazing breakthrough technology (laughs) as it was back then. So I think there was a lot of work actually in IT. It was just the nature of life in the 80s is that this was an expanding and a rapidly expanding field and an accident. I happened to fall into IBM, but uh, there there was a lot of work available. I think that's probably why it happened. There was a lot of work available.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds very exciting. Mm. I was born in the 80s, but my father was in aerospace. So we had a PC when I was pretty young and he always made sure we had a computer. And so I remember prodigy and, you know, the early stages of what people were predicting the internet might look like and how it might operate. And so all of that makes sense to me, sort of the excitement around computers and being at the stage in life you were in, which is on the brink of a career, makes a lot of sense that you made that choice. So thank you for sharing that and explaining that to us. It, that is such an interesting time compared to where we are now, where we feel kind of saturated by technology. So- yes,
0: yes. <laughs> Back then, you'd get one new announcement of a of a product <laughs> it was upgraded perhaps every 18 months that sort of time there would be a new yeah. product maybe maybe a year maybe
1: more than that yeah
0: uh, yeah yeah it was infrequent so it was a big deal and you see videos on the internet now of people unpacking boxes right. have you come stumbled over that yeah. yeah it's a thing yeah, yeah. people unpacking boxes <laughs> but if you had had a, if there'd been a camera on the wall watching me When I was unpacking the first boxes of, you know, the latest (laughs) computers, like, you know, the second PC ever to be developed, we were equally enthralled. And that happened every time we got a new product. The opening was very exciting and reading all the documentation and trying it on and looking, exploring it. It was a a very – I'm saying it was an exciting time. I still have a small thrill each time I – open a a new phone for example or Uh, get a new laptop i am one of those weird people who does read the manual oh i'm i know we're a minority there aren't many (laughs) of us but (laughs) but we stand together that's (laughs) very cool brothers and sisters out there we know who we are we're proud we are willing to read (laughs) the manual because (laughs) there's a lot of good stuff in there and you save yourself a lot of pain
1: Oh my goodness! That's a really good point. Is you know that that's very smart to look at it that way. You're actually saving time by reading the manual.
0: It's easy to believe, I think, with a lot of technology, that it's kind of obvious what it can do, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is intuitive. Things are so much is. easier to use now. It is. It's absolutely marvellous. But yeah. there's a lot of things which are just under the covers. My sister had an iPhone for I think three years without realizing it had Siri. This voice-activated, well, you could give it instructions, as you know. You can ask your phone to do things. And there's a lot of things, actually, like that in all of our technology, our laptops, our phones, our microphones, everything. You just need to be willing to read a couple of pages in, and it's like an Aladdin's cave, Barsi. I think of manual. <laughs> are you with me? Am I, am I making any progress here? You, I think
1: <laughs> you are, but for me, it's it's the car manual. I like to read the car manuals, so ah. I'm, I'm with you in certain areas. Yes, yes,
0: good. <laughs> there you go. So you've had your own personal lived experience of discovering how to do something, and it was there. It was in the manual, waiting to be discovered.
1: Yes, exactly. And there it is. It's for you. And I carry it with me In I leave it in the car as a reference.
0: Good idea.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I want to flash (laughs) forward a little bit. But before I do, I want to just talk about where you're from for a second, because you have this lovely accent, but it's not from a single place. So can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and you did end up traveling the world, but you spent significant time in some of those places. Can you just share a little bit of that with us?
0: Yeah, sure. So I started uh, life in the southeast of England, close enough to see France. It's about so the bottom right hand corner, a place called Ramsgate and uh, Broadstairs, two little towns next to the seaside. So I grew up there, but moved to Scotland for university. And it was then that my accent began to be corrupted <laughs> because I got a New Zealand girlfriend and it irreparably damaged my pure English accent. <laughs> and But since then, I've also travelled with my voice box to Germany. I had three wonderful years speaking German in Germany. I'd encourage all your listeners, if they get a chance, when we get a chance to travel again to visit Germany, fabulous country. I also had a couple of years in the Middle East, working with people from Syria, Sudan, Egypt, Lebanon, and the United Arab Emirates. All sorts of uh, diverse peoples, which I'm sure also nudged my accent in a little direction. And since uh, 2000, I've been here in Australia, surrounded by Australian accents. And now in Australia, they ask me, so where, where are you from originally, Eric? You're not from here, obviously. And when I do go back to the UK, people say the same thing. Eric, where are you from? You're not from here. Are you, and they might say... I get this South African. Is that a is that a, is that a South African voice? Or it, it, all sorts of things. So my accent is a bit messed up. But hey, this is the age of diversity, isn't it? And acceptance and tolerance of difference.
1: I, I wouldn't agree that it's messed up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I would maybe say that it's uh, seasoned or diverse, like you said, which is much more maybe accurate well my mother has a similar situation she, she spent significant time living in different places and picked up the accents in them and her accent sounds very different than my father's for example who mm-hmm. but yet they're both hungarian so people are constantly asking her where she's from and she mm. never knows which story to tell because she knows that her voice is being influenced by a few different places so you share that in common with my family as well <laughs>
0: Oh, I'm glad to share that. And, and what I would say to people, and I say this to my coaching clients, who many of them come from different parts of the world, and they sometimes have accents. It's actually my experience that having a differentiated accent is an advantage in that you just sound a little bit different and you stand out. We don't want a world of uh, mediocre homogeneity, you know, just everyone being identical creatures. We do need difference. And if you have a business, if you have something to offer, it's a good thing to be differentiated a little and to stand out. I'd love to hear your mother's accent. Can you yeah. can you do a, a Hungarian accent for me?
1: You know, it's I do do accents and that's one of the few I have a hard time with because to me it doesn't sound like an accent. Does that make sense? Mm,
0: yes, of course. It's
1: just how my parents talk.
0: <laughs> mm, it's how a mother, it's how mothers talk.
1: Right, and I I thought it was very strange. I remember thinking, from friends would say, "Oh, your family ha- has an accent," and I was like, "No, they don't." <laughs> yeah. it, it took me a while to be convinced that there was any accents happening. I was like, "No, that's that's, that's how people that's talk." Lovely, yeah, <laughs> that's so, lovely. Yeah, it's the one that I cannot do. I can't do their accent. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there are funny thing accents. I was on a podcast a couple of months ago speaking to someone in the south of uh, the U.S. And they said, Eric, you have an accent, don't you? And they said it with this big, broad U.S. accent. And it's the funniest thing. We assume we don't have one. And it's, it's everybody else. Have you noticed how everybody else has an accent? But, of course, mm-hmm. you can't not have an accent. Every single one of us sounds like something.
1: Exactly. And it's all perspective or perception as well. Hundred percent. Yeah. Well, that was just fun yes. to, to talk about. But as I promised, I would flash forward a little. And when I say that, what I'm referring to is your next chapter. You had all of this time. You had this wonderful career with IBM, mm. and then you shifted again. I think it was in 2009, and you started a master's program in something totally different. Can you help us understand why you left IBM, or what spawned that shift and interest mm. in your next? program, your next master's degree.
0: Yes. I'd I'd actually been working for 20 years by now in the IT industry and was having a good time. I'd now, to a large degree, mastered my craft, so I knew what I was doing. But I was getting bored. It was all... Pretty familiar, And I was on a long drive from Sydney to Canberra and it was it's a route I normally fly, but just for the change, just to mix things up, I thought, oh, I'll drive this time. And on this long drive, and there's nothing to look at, Barsi, I tell you, it's <laughs> so monotonous either side, nothing. On this long drive, I began to muse and I thought, well, I mean, you know, I've just had 20 years of this career. If I was to stay in this career for the rest of my life, then look back from the future, if I'd stayed in this would I thank myself for staying here? You know, would I say, what a good thing. What a good thing I kept doing what I was doing for my life. And I got this resounding no back. And wow. it was the easiest thing would have been to stay where I was because the work was very secure and I was appreciated. I could come into the office when I felt like it and stay at home if I felt like it. So there's enormous for flexibility and it was well paid, but <laughs> I was bored I was bored. I was not growing. It was getting a bit dull. And I I actually resolved on that drive that I had to do something different. I had to leave. And I didn't know what it was at the time. I just knew it had to be something. And I decided I needed to get some perspective. It's very hard to think new thoughts when you're in the same environment Mm. that supports old thinking. Our thinking is constrained by our environment, by what we see and what we hear around us. So I actually packed everything in at IBM. I left without knowing what I was going to do, but I thought I'd take some time out. And I took my bicycle to Vancouver and I spent four months cycling around Canada, seeing whales, seeing bears, climbing mountains, meeting people, and just allowing myself to detach from my routine life and allow my mind to explore what might come next. Wow! And it was so good, and it was a privilege to be able to do that. To be in a situation where I was—I wasn't married. I didn't have any children. I had a pocket full of pocket money, mm. which could fund that trip. And it's one of the best things I've ever done. Amazing. So it was—it was just tremendous. And it was on that period, as I say, that I did think, you know, I, I'm interested in the human mind, and I'm interested in how we can manage our minds, to what extent can we influence our well-being, our focus, our motivation. And I didn't know very much about it, but I discovered that there was this huge world of mental well-being and performance and coaching. And there is a science of well-being and a science of helping people to change behavior.
1: Mm, No. I'm starting to see the intersection for you here with the science approach. Yes,
0: yes. And there's more to it than that too. The overlap is, it can be explained in hindsight in that, again, what I do now as a self-leadership coach is I spend time with people, talking to people about what's important to them, what they'd like to make happen, what's getting in the way. And I collaborate with them to help them to define strategies in order to help them to be more successful. Now, I was doing that in IT. Back then, it was about problems in managing businesses. But this time, it's about problems in managing ourselves, problems in leading ourselves, in managing our scattered attention and directing it with focus towards what matters most and finding ways to build the inner strengths that are necessary to navigate life's challenges. So there is a, nowadays, I think of it actually as the human ecology of the mind. So in mm. the back, I was thinking about how animals interact with each other and how they interact with their environment and how that impacts their health. But Now I'm thinking about humans. How do we interact with each other? How do we interact with our environment? How can we optimize our own living by managing not just ourselves, it's got to begin with ourselves. And that's why I call myself a self-leadership coach. It starts with ourselves. But after that, then we're in a position to helpfully influence those we work with, those we live with, uh, our families, our loved ones, to help them to be their best as well. But it all starts on the inside.
1: Can I ask you if this inspiration to lean into, or I should say maybe shift into this Interest in exploring the self in our interpersonal, what we'll call the human ecology, which I really like, that's a wonderful way to refer to it. Was this sort of inspired by your own experience with having to ask yourself these questions and separating yourself from your environment and seeing what the influences are and observing yourself? Or was it already happening for you mentally in this path of wanting to explore that?
0: Well, I'm almost embarrassed to say this because I've indulged myself hugely into the science of well-being. So I have two masters of science degrees in, in behavioural science and Wonderful. psychotherapy and counselling. So I'm very science oriented. But when I was living and working in Abu Dhabi, my brother-in-law, John, said, there's a book you need to have a look at. You really ought to get yourself a copy of this book. And it was by Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins, the planetary number one motivational coach and speaker, not a lot of science in what he does. However, I was intrigued by his approach to helping people to manage their minds, to manage their focus, to connect and to develop an inner motivation. And I I did attend one of his three-day workshops when I was in Toronto, actually, Mm. on my Canadian cycle tour. So I have to sheepishly acknowledge it was actually Tony who awake. <laughs> Let me say it. I'm going to say it. Oh, he awoke the giant within.
1: Um- <laughs> <laughs> that's. I was wondering if that's where this was going. Yes.
0: I have to spit it out. I have to spit it out. So that was, of course, the name of was it his, his second or his first book.
1: I don't remember. It's a very popular one, regardless. Yeah.
0: So I'm having a bit of fun with it. I don't have a giant inside, but he did <laughs> awaken an interest, an appetite for knowing more. And it turns out the the area of human performance and well being and motivation that he concentrates in is just the tip of the iceberg into what is known about developing our well being, our courage, our resilience, our happiness. It's the tip, but he was my gateway there we go <laughs> with my gateway into that world that's there that's how it happened
1: <laughs> thanks for being honest and sharing that because i i know that it can feel funny when someone's that popular to be like oh it feels cliche but at the end of the day he's popular for a reason yes he's very good yes. at what he does and
0: it's true he is and actually he has a lot to teach us on many levels one you know i mean yes the content what he's saying A lot of it is extremely helpful. A lot, not all of it, but a lot. A lot of it is really helpful. Great. But also he is an expert communicator. He is. And I have so much respect for those who can stand in front of an audience and clearly enunciate a message and get others to take action. And Tony is the master of that. So I do look up to him as a communication role model, too.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. And and a lot of communication, I think this type of work helps with that too. So kind of to me, it feels very related to the fact that he's good at that, what Mm. he works on regarding himself and others and the interpersonal relationships that come with this type of work, consulting and coaching. So thanks again for sharing that. And then, so that kind of kicked off your path. And then you went Mm. back to school. Was that the, yes the next move for you
0: it was yes so I started off learning about psychotherapy and counseling at the time I didn't really know what coaching was so I, I knew that there was this body of knowledge and training in this field of helping people in distress so I launched into that and I learned about helping people experiencing depression severe anxiety people with really challenging habits but in that course towards the end, I met Professor John Franklin, Professor down here at the University of Macquarie, and he taught us about coaching and well-being and how the science of happiness, how we can proven ways, the demonstrated ways that all of us can help ourselves to be happier and more energised and just do better at whatever we care about in life. And he said, Eric, if you like this part of the course that you've just learnt you really need to take a look at what they're doing at the University of Sydney. Mm. And he had helped set up the world's first master's program for coaching psychology. And it's on my doorstep. So it was such a blessing that, you know, planet-wide, the very first institution to implement a Master of Science in Coaching Psychology was seven kilometers away from my front wow. door. Yeah, just extraordinary. Extraordinary. And so I applied and in my application, I haven't told anyone this before, so keep this to yourself, Parsi, in my application. No one else will hear it. No, (laughs) I had to plead my case because they only took in a small percentage of people who applied. There was a lot of demand to get in to this program. It it was led by the global leader in coaching psychology, a fabulous guy called Tony Grant. So I applied to uh, Tony Grant and said, look, Here's my case this is what i do so i'm interested in and i said and you should know i have attended tony Robbins' three-day <laughs> training in you know, that's how interested i am i've read all his books and tony phoned me up he said eric never mention word to the wise if you're applying for something in the field of science don't mention tony robbins there's a lot of friction between that kind of rah-rah you can do it type approach and there's a lot more to Tony than that. But uh, it, it doesn't go down well. Uh, his name doesn't carry a lot of weight in the area of science. Uh, but he said, look, but regardless, you're in. <laughs> but don't mention his name again.
1: <laughs> now I understand why you felt a little shameful in mentioning it here. <laughs>
0: yes, and, and only a little. Because the, the more I've gone on, the more I've learned about what we do know about human motivation, the more of it I can see actually woven into what... Tony does, so I do think the guy over-exaggerates what people are capable of. But he, having said that, there's an awful lot that's very, very valuable, and and actually is validated mm-hmm. in the work that he does.
1: I see that makes sense, and I think with a lot of things, you take what resonates and you leave the rest, right? So, hundred percent, there has to be some idea or understanding of the choices and control that we have as individuals as we engage. I've-
0: love that you've mentioned that because I actually start all my workshops with that sentence you've just uttered oh. I said we're going to cover a lot of things some of it will work for you some of it will fit some of it won't some of it won't resonate at all take what works for you and discard the rest right and I think it's so important that people are encouraged to choose it's this idea of Choice is uh, is very empowering for us, and uh, the truth is actually not everything will work. We have to find what works for us.
1: Yes, I'm really glad you said that because that's at the core of I think a lot of coaching. Like I loved the way you described the type of coaching you do earlier, where you said you collaborate, mm. and that struck me. And I think it fits into this part of the conversation where it's really about putting the person you're working with into an empowerment place and you're offering them options and tools and techniques that maybe they haven't been exposed to before, or maybe they, it would work now and didn't work before whatever the situation is. But it's in my experience as a creativity coach, I'm a Kaizen Muse creativity coach to use Kaizen and things that are very gentle, small steps, that kind of thing. But it's really designed to show the person we're working with that they have the answers. It's just a matter of making choices. So yes, I appreciate that you brought
0: that up. Yes, important that we help people to find their own way and they'll take ownership of it too. Not only will it be a better fit, but it'll be something that they have selected for themselves. Yes.
1: So I don't want to cut this part of the story off, but I know that you wrote a book and I want to make sure we have time to talk about that. Mm. Are you willing to jump ahead towards that?
0: Oh, <laughs> good. Yes. Swipe right on your best yeah, self. Yeah, I feel
1: like we're kind of segueing into this already. So can you just tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book, like why this topic, this book, and why you wrote it in a very specific way that I appreciate. It felt kind of practical, almost like a life guide when I was going through it. Mm. And I'd love to hear your take on that and, and how, why you created it the way you did. Mm.
0: So there's. I'm a, a voracious reader. Of books about self-help and motivation and willpower and goal setting and, and the, yeah the, the science of doing well and thriving and positive psychology, but there's an awful lot of books out there that might have one or two ideas, but there's an awful lot of padding you've got to get through before you can access the idea <laughs> yes. in the middle. It's a bit like those Amazon packages in the bus. You get you order something something small, but you get this big box and it would have all of this bubble wrap. and you'd have to to dig down into the middle of the box to get the thing that you'd actually ordered a lot of books are like that a lot of padding and I have been very irritated by those books so I had always resolved if I was was going to communicate something I wanted it to get to the point quickly I wanted to provide a lot of ideas I wanted to make it very very practical and highly accessible so easy to understand and very, very practical. And also to be fun. Mm-hmm. Too many dull books out there too. <laughs> I wanted it to be fun. So as I was reading, I was just picking up different ideas, different ways of presenting information that resonated for me. And I read books and I just love the way some of them would summarize what had been in the chapter at the end of the chapter. Love that. Some of them recently, some books have been really small, really, really small books. And when I pick them up, I always feel, oh, I could read this. Whereas if I pick up a sort of Bible-sized book, I feel a little bit of overwhelmed that it's more of a project than if I pick up a heavy book. So I thought, oh, no, I want to make this book small. I want summaries. I want graphics. And I want easy, understandable action items. And here, what prompted the book was, a few years ago, a palliative care nurse here in Australia who was spending time with people in their last days and weeks she wrote a book called the top five regrets of the dying because she was hearing again and again the things that people regretted they would share their most intimate regrets with her and the number one regret this really resonated for me the number one regret that she heard from the dying was i wish i'd had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life that others expected of me wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life that others expected of me. And this message from the dying is a real gift to the living. It's telling us that there is something we need to work on now. And I realized that a lot of the information, a lot of the strategies and approaches that I'd learned about human behavior, helping people to take action and build motivation, could help people to do just this, to avoid the number one regret of the dying and instead author a life that was true to themselves. That's what my book is about, how to author a life that's true to you, not to your culture, not to your family, not to the expectations of others, but to spend some time, and it does take some time, and it's something that isn't done once, it's something we do on an ongoing basis, is to decide, okay, what matters to me now in this part of my life? How would I like to show up? What's important? And then, after we've decided the qualities that we would like to be expressing, the personal ambitions that we would like to work towards, then to develop courage. And courage isn't something that we're born with or something that you you either have or you don't. It's It's skill. We know now that courage is a capability and wherever we are on the spectrum of courage and we're all somewhere, every one of us can nudge ourselves into a slightly more courageous version of ourselves, being willing to do more of what's personally important and challenging. So that's what the book is all
1: about. Thank you for sharing that and for explaining what the inspiration was, why you felt it was important to write this book. And you talk mm. about being courageous throughout. Courageous living feels like the action piece, the theme from that perspective, and or the verb, if you will. And yes. you also say that self-delusion is a devaluing of life. That struck me. Can you explain to us a little what you mean by that?
0: Yes. So there are a number of things which keep us from living bigger, more fulfilled lives, keep us constrained. And one of them is we devalue our time alive. If we were to truly value each moment alive on this planet to the extent that it deserves, I think all of us would be far less willing to waste our time. And we'd spend a lot more of our time doing what matters. What drives this I believe what drives this uh, reluctance to value time is that all of us, absolutely all of us are reluctant to fully accept our mortality. Mm. The fact that we are absolutely certainly going to die. Life on earth is finite. It's limited. Mm-hmm. And when we think about death, it, it's an uncomfortable thought. It's an inconvenient truth, isn't it? That, we, that in fact, we're not here forever and ever and ever. In fact we are going to die. And so we push that thought out of our minds. We we so you know, we'll say things like what's the point of being morbid? You know? What's the point of dwelling on that? Let's focus on now I don't want to think about that. But when we push completely out of mind our mortality, we demotivate ourselves to live now while we can. It undermines our any sense of urgency to get on with life, to say the things that are important to the people we love, to aspire to develop the relationships that we'd like to have in our life, to aspire to develop the careers, to travel, to experience life fully. If even a part of you thinks you're going to live forever, then it's very easy to procrastinate life away, to defer, you know, I'll do that at some point i'll get around to that when you can just a few times a day briefly very briefly just allow yourself to reconnect to the awareness that yep this isn't forever and not only is it not forever it's for quite a limited period of time and even if you make it to say a hundred not everybody will okay not everybody lives to a hundred The reality of our situation is it is a little grim, but we may only have today. You know, it's possible we may only have today or we might get two years or five or seven or 19. I don't know. None of us know. But what we do know is that life is limited. It's finite. And when we accept that, people do connect to an urgency to do what's important. And there are, there are so many stories, and Barsi, I'm sure you've heard some of them, where people actually have been told, sorry, sir, or sorry, madam, but it looks like you've only got another three months to live. You know, people, and they will say, a lot of these people will say, I have never lived so much as I did in my last three or six months. And there was something about the awareness of an approaching end that triggered a significant activation energy to really taste life now while we can to do more each day of what matters to make the phone calls that are important to see things to taste things to learn things but to live to be really vital and alive now so paradoxically dwelling on death (laughs) briefly that's this is the important thing you don't want to spend all day thinking about it that will not trigger an activation energy but just briefly just remind yourself oh yeah this is not forever let me live now while i can people become more alive when they think briefly about death
1: yes there's a lot of knowledgement of the present when we can do that and and realize that life is happening now it's not happening in the future It's no longer happening in the past. And so I'm hearing that the self-delusion is not acknowledging that fact.
0: Yes, it's a lie. Well, we we lie to ourselves in many ways because we continually want to reassure and soothe ourselves. And the mind will tell us all sorts of fibs about life to avoid feeling bad today. But the reality is that if we're going to avoid the number one regret of the dying, we need to be courageous, to live lives true to ourselves we need to be courageous but courage is a very uncomfortable a courageous act i should say is an uncomfortable act because we are taking action in the presence of doubt in the presence of anxiety fear uncertainty of a successful outcome that's courage so we do need to be able to build skills and there are skills to experience uncertainty and doubt and not let them overwhelm us but still take action and luckily that's something that we can all do
1: yes that's the power piece again is that we're all going to die and we're all living now if we can listen to this right so that means we all have the same choice to choose to learn the skills not learn the skills acknowledge that we're going to die or not all of these things yeah
0: there's one thing i'd like to share with your listeners just now for your courageous listeners who are willing to turn briefly <laughs> to their mortality, towards their mortality, just briefly, and that's to visit the website count.life, C-O-U-N-T dot L-I-F-E. And at that website, you get a little prompt. It'll say, when were you born? How old do you think you're going to live? How many years do you think you'll live for? Give yourself 100. You know, Be <laughs> generous. Then you just press enter. <laughs> Why not? Uh, I did. Uh, press enter. And it gives you a graphic and it shows you all of the weeks of a hundred year old life. In one color, it shows the weeks you've already had. And in another color, it shows the weeks you'll have if you get to the end. And it's quite sobering to see our life visually represented as weeks, these little bricks. It felt very different to me than just telling myself, oh, I've got X numbers of years left. There's something about the visual. And if your listeners are like me, you will have a sense of, oh, my goodness, it's really finite. There's quite a lot of bricks and not that many and not that many. So I found that website really helpful to look at now and again, just for that little uh, kick of urgency to live now while we can.
1: I can also see someone getting a little stuck in fear when seeing something like that. Do you have any tools of thought for that opposite reaction?:
0: Well, I mean there's a number of things we can do to reduce reactivity. I mean, these are just physical things, so I mean just the slow breathing might put you into a more resilient state. But I would remind yourself that many people have had their best lives after they've been told they only have three months or six months Mm -hmm. to live. They've had the best part of their lives. This is what this website offers us. It's the possibility of having our best lives without being given a terminal diagnosis. Right? Wouldn't it be silly if we waited until we were three months away from the end before we felt an urgency to live well? We don't need to wait for that to happen. We should turn towards it now and seize the day <laughs> as they say seize and it's not even the day it's it's the minute each minute is new and we have choices to make and that's why my book's called swipe right on your best self because swiping is this metaphor for choosing mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time choosing uh, what kind of people we'd like to be our intimate partners but we don't spend quite as much time thinking about who we'd like to spend even more time with and that's ourselves Every minute, every moment of every minute gives us another choice to choose what kind of person we want to be now. Yes. Am I going to be compassionate, caring, friendly, thoughtful, focused, interested, exploratory, kind? We get to choose and It doesn't matter what we've done in our past, really. The the past does not reach out from the past to determine what we have to do in this next minute. There's an extraordinary freedom that each of us has in every new moment, a freedom to begin again and turn towards what's personally important to author our lives.
1: Beautifully said. I completely agree. And something that I noticed that really works to help us along this choosing the present moment, choosing to live in the moment, choosing to be who we want to be, feel the way we want to feel is gratitude. And you talk about Ooh. that in your book as well. And you oh, you call yes. it defiant gratitude and you say that it emboldens yes. us, which I thought was such a great just way to look at it, that it emboldens us. Um, do you want to, expand a little on, on, on your perspective on gratitude
0: yes ab- absolutely thank you for mentioning this because i call it defiant gratitude because there's an awful lot of well-funded forces in the world advertising and the media which is committed to making you feel a sense of lack that's what it's all about advertising that's here's something that you don't have and if only you had it then you'd be happier but, and more popular and better looking. Because as you are, this is what advertising does, it diminishes us because it tells us you are not happy enough, popular enough, good-looking enough, well-trained enough, successful enough, and you can carry on. So it diminishes us. And actually, our courage is diminished if we are overly exposed. And which of us isn't, Barsi, which of us is not overly exposed mm-hmm. right now? to advertising, it's everywhere we look. Every time you turn on the phone, look in your inbox, walk down the street, turn on the TV, turn on YouTube, whatever. We are saturated with messaging, which most of it, not all of it, but an awful lot of it, diminishes us by creating a sense of lack. So the antidote to this sense of lack is gratitude for what we do have. It's a bit like a vaccination. How topical is this? (laughs) It's a bit like a vaccination against feeling diminished by the media. Gratitude. And this is ancient wisdom. The Stoics knew this. If you want to be happy, I think this was Epictetus, if you want to be happy, learn to want what you already have. And yet all of us become accustomed to what we already have and take it for granted. Not because we're flawed or defective. It's just what the human mind does. It accustoms itself to what it has. So we might get, it could be a new relationship or a, a new phone or a new car or a new sofa or a new something. Mm-hmm. And initially it's wonderful and new and it's fresh and exciting. But we can become used to these new things and take them for granted very, very quickly. We habituate We habituate. and I've got a confession for the listeners. I have a problem with habituating to speed signs and speed cameras on the roads. So we've got some near us. And when they first went up, they were new. I was very, very conscious that they were there. And then as time went by, they just sort of blended into the background. And I have received a number of speeding fines (laughs) because I have habituated to those cameras. Now... The antidote to habituating to what's good about life is gratitude. And it's so important, this. There are absolutely no downsides. It doesn't cost anything, so you won't see billboards encouraging you to be grateful. But take a few moments to appreciate what you do have that you value in life. Every day, just for, I'm not saying for an hour, but just for maybe one minute, for one minute, just allowing yourself to experience an appreciation. And and the lovely thing about this, Barsi, is it doesn't have to be an appreciation for something big. It could be an appreciation for something small. I don't believe there are any small pleasures. Okay, there are none. When you give them your attention and immerse yourself in the smallest of pleasures, they expand in our awareness and they can have a profound influence so we could appreciate being able to have a glass of clean water emperors around the planet until recently could not did not have hot and cold running water at will 24 hours a day they couldn't do it this is new this is new but how ordinary is that for us but we should take you know appreciate that i can get strawberries all year round that's an amazing thing. They're actually in season, I should say, in, in <laughs> Sydney right now, and they're very, very good. But you can get wonderful foods all year round. I'm speaking to you. On, you're on the other side of the planet. You're on the other side of the seasons, yeah, right. Darcy. And, yet, <laughs> and yet we can talk in real time. We live in an age of miracles. It's a sort of magic, but we can do that. So we need to just pause now and again and appreciate what we do have in our lives. And the wonderful thing is these small pleasures, if you stay with them for just a little bit longer, they build an inner strength. They actually change us. They change us neurologically. But we we can't just do it for a second. We need to stay with a sense of well-being for maybe 10 seconds. Stretch it out if you can. 10 seconds. So there's a little exercise, uh, if I may, I'd like to share with your listeners. It's my favourite Gratitude exercise, my absolute favourite. I call it the ultimate gratitude exercise. And uh, I've learnt it from Stoic philosophers. And it's this. The reality is, and we've touched on it briefly already, the reality is at some point in our lives, we will do everything for the last time. Yeah, everything for the last time. We will speak to someone for the last time. We'll have a, a chocolate bar for the last time, a coffee for the last time. However, the truth is you and I have already done some things for the last time without realising it. You may have travelled to another country and walked down a street and you will never walk down that street again. You may have eaten something from a cafe somewhere and you will never visit that cafe again. You'll never have that experience again. There are people we've spoken to, Barsi, in our lives that we will never speak to, again. So the exercise is this. It's just twice a day to do anything in your life, any small pleasure. And it can be very, very small. Uh, I'm a coffee drinker or and a tea drinker. Do you drink coffee or tea bar I do, or?
1: both, both or, yeah.
0: Oh, great, great. So the, the next time you have a coffee, I'd like you to drink it as though... It was the last one. Now, not because you're about to meet some dreadful end, but because maybe the coffee bean harvest has failed, or something like that. Okay, it's just a thought experiment. What if I was going to have a long life, but this actually was my last coffee in my long, healthy life? What if? Now, how much attention would you give to the flavours, to the texture of the coffee as it rolls around your mouth, to the aroma, to the experience of your last coffee, what would that be like?
1: I can't help but feel sad when I think about this, Mm -hmm. which brings me to, which I'd love to talk this out with you, is Mm -hmm. it's a distraction, the sadness, versus being able to lean into the gratitude for me in this moment. So how Mm -hmm. do we get around that distraction so that we can really appreciate the exercise?
0: Yes, with something I call fierce well, it's not just me. <laughs> something <laughs> Self-compassion researchers call fierce self-compassion. So we would turn to that part of ourselves that feels sadness with friendliness and kindness.
1: Mm, that's very sweet.
0: So in our life, there'll be many times when we feel daunted, bereft, a sense of loss, a sense of pain or hurt. And the attitude which will help us, to do what's important, even while we feel life's natural pains and discomforts is kindness or friendliness. That's the attitude I'd ask yourself to turn towards that.
1: I appreciate that. And I and I think you're right on, and it was nice to hear that as a solution, because I do think that self kindness is gratitude's sort of companion. And that does yes. make a lot of sense when you explain it that way. So I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think this is underestimated by many, many people. Life is hard and there's a pervading sort of positivity culture at the moment that says, no, we've got to look on the bright side. No, no, you've got to cheer up. You really need to cheer up. Look on the bright side. Everything's going to be okay. And it denies our real lived human experience of natural suffering and disappointment and hurt and regret. And when we push away those uncomfortable feelings or try to deny that we're having them. We also, at the same time, diminish our ability to experience joy, pleasure, love, appreciation. If we dial down the volume on pain, we also dial down the volume on awe, gratitude, happiness. And kindness, self-compassion, and friendliness directed towards ourselves gives us The inner strength. And it's an attitude of saying, yes, this is hard. Yes, there is disappointment here. Yes, that hurts. And that attitude of being in relation, a kind relationship to our pain and our hurt, emboldens us to turn towards what's important.
1: Thank you for that. That was very well explained. And I felt the weight of that explanation in a way mm. that was just very real and very true to what life is. So thank you for that.
0: Mm. Yeah, it, it's part of living an authentic life, is being honest with ourselves. You know, it's about being very honest. Honest about what hurts, honest about what we're experiencing, but honest also about our circumstance, that we are here for a certain period of time, and taking ownership of our precious time alive.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a wonderful way to close, I think. But I want to ask you one more question, which is if there was just one takeaway that you'd like the listener to have from today's conversation, what would that be?
0: Well, I do think that the biggest takeaway is to own our human predicament of not being immortal. We're not gods. We don't go on forever. And I think it's the more we can own the situation that we're in, that we are alive now and it is an extraordinary gift to have to be alive in a human body being able to choose where you place your attention how you move your arms how you speak to people it is extraordinary privilege to have any time alive so i would encourage all the listeners to celebrate their lives to own them to celebrate them and to live them with greater fulfillment.
1: Yes. Thank you for that. That's wonderful. So how can we connect with you? How can we get your book? How can we find you and engage?
0: Well, the book's available from uh, all online booksellers. And it's, there's a, an ebook version, a Kindle version, as well as the paper book version. For your Australian uh, listeners, they can get the book, a signed copy of the book from my website, ericwinters.com.au. And that's uh, also the place to see the the workshops and the talks that I offer, ericwinters.com.au. And for people in organizations, you should connect with me on LinkedIn. That would be the best place. I look forward to connecting on LinkedIn.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Eric. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I feel like I learned so much from you just here today, in addition to reading the book. So I appreciate you sharing your time with us.
0: It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to Bebble Begin. Make sure to catch our Thursday Small Shifts episodes for five minute self reflective small questions that follow a theme in a guided meditation style. Also, be sure to click the follow button or check mark for Bebble Begin on your favorite podcast app to add it to your library so each episode downloads automatically. And if you'd like to stay connected for workshops and all Bebble Begin offers, And get a free guide to working with fear and imposter syndrome. You can go to fearimposter.avanthousemedia.com or click the link in the show notes. Stay safe and keep creating.